I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Shauna Lawless about her historical fantasy, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men. Shauna is an author and blogger from County Down. I really wanted to talk to Shauna about her route to publication, because I knew originally she was writing purely for pleasure, with no thought of publication at all. And she started writing in this precious hour when her husband was doing the kids' bedtime routine every other night. And she used that hour to pursue her passion. And her book deal came about in an interesting way too, because she submitted her novel to an open submission opportunity at Publishers Head of Zeus before she even had an agent. So we'll talk about that and also how she blended Irish history and mythology to write her novel. But first, here's Shauna with an excerpt from The Children of Gods and Fighting Men. Amlav's armour, sword and axe gleamed as if new. His beard, washed and bathed in lavender-scented oils, glistened in the soft candlelight and curled elegantly over his chest. I leaned forward and rubbed my finger over his lips, down his cheek until I touched the wolf fur cloak which covered the stone slab he lay upon. Only a stray lock of hair that had fallen across his forehead marred the effect. The nuns had dressed him well, but it was my duty as his wife to ensure he crossed over to the afterlife, looking like a king. I pushed the curl back, sweeping it into line with the others. Once satisfied, I smiled. Lying down, eyes closed, had always been the way I preferred Amlav, but this was better. Death had a finality that sleep could only imitate. Death suited him in other ways too. His right hand had stiffened to grip his sword tighter than I'd ever seen him hold it in life. He'd been a warrior once, true enough. But by the time my father inflicted this marriage upon me, Amlav had been almost 70, his fighting days over. When his armies left Dublin to fight the Irish, he had gone with them. But I knew when the battle was at its worst, he sat on his fat horse while our warriors drew their swords. Well deserved, the warriors said. For Amlav's reputation preceded him. The number of men he'd slain in his prime numbered over a thousand. No one dared to call him coward, only old. Hi Shauna, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men. 
So thanks, Chloe, very much for inviting me to be on. It's, it's great to be talking to you. So can you start by telling us what your novel's about? Oh, okay. So it is a historical fantasy. Uh, it's set in 10th century Ireland. Um, but so it's about a real time in Irish history. There's real historical characters, but there are also two characters who have magical powers that are derived from Irish mythology. And there are two protagonists. So one is descended from the Fomorian tribe and one is descended from the Tuatha de Danann. And so these two women are trying to navigate Ireland during a time of great upheaval. And I saw, well, it's obvious from every interview I've seen with you that you are a huge fan of Irish mythology and history. And obviously that inspired this novel. But can you remember kind of where that initial seed of an idea came from? Oh, gosh, it's probably it's so long ago now. <laughs> Um, I think well, when I started writing seriously, because um, I had a bit of a break when I had my kids. So it was I was 30 when I started writing again and I opened up my computer the day after my 30th birthday and just started writing. I didn't have any plan at all. It was just right. Just go just see sort of what comes out. And it's just the kind of infusion of Irish mythology and Irish historical fiction just came out. And I think, in a sense, you know, write what you know, write what you what what you love. It just is true for me, and that's just what came onto the page, because at that stage, I'd read, you know, I'd read lots of Irish history books, I'd read lots of Irish mythology stories, um, and all the cycles. So it was just something I knew a lot about, and I was interested in. Um, so it wasn't pre-planned; it just just sort mm. of. Yeah, came Do you think it's something that you've kind of had at the back of your mind for a long time that you thought one day um, this is what I'm going to write? Maybe. Do you know what? Because I was, a, I've always been a big fan of historical fiction as a genre and fantasy. But um, in terms of historical fiction, I just loved Hilary Mantel's work, um, and then like Philippa Gregory, Bernard Cornwell, and I think um, English historical fiction has been really well done. Uh, lots of these wonderful characters and it did occur to me when I was reading all these stories that there isn't the same um, kind of there's not there's not very many works in Irish historical fiction and what there is would focus a lot on the famine and the Easter Rising, uh, the War of Independence and the Troubles but if you go further back than that there's there's almost nothing there's there's not much at all and I just remember thinking, well, but these these kind of medieval period uh, stories for Tudor England and the War of the Roses and um, the Anarchy, you know, they're so brilliant. Um, and that that was the period of history I preferred. And it was so it was always in the back of my mind that, you know, Irish history at this this point in time is really, really interesting. And there's this kind of a gap here, you know, I, that, that mm. was originally like I was looking for books in that era to read um, and noticing that there wasn't a lot to to choose from. Yeah I've often found that people said they've written the book that they wish they could buy or find themselves and it sounds like that's something that you did. So tell us then how you sat down at your computer after your 30th birthday, how did that kind of turn into a novel then because 
you just started writing what was in your head and what you kind of were passionate about at what point did you sort of think okay this needs some sort of structure or story or was there a point where you kind of thought okay this this has got potential right so the first novel I wrote wasn't this one it was a a different one but it was still historical fantasy and still had people that were from the Tudadanan and Fomorian tribes in it so it was similar-ish but I just wrote and I wrote and two years later I had a novel that was 230,000 words wow yeah (laughs) it was a lot of nonsense you know I hadn't deleted anything I just sort of splurged on (laughs) and you know a story had sort of somehow come together and I realized it was a very badly written novel you know it wasn't at all readable let alone like sellable (laughs) so then I joined Critique Circle which is an online website where you can have your own work critiqued and you can critique other people's work to earn kind of enough points to put your chapters up so I was there for two years maybe more than two years and I got the novel down to 180,000 words. Um, but it, and I, I did submit that, but it, it was just too clunky and probably still not you know, streamlined enough. And I think that splurge, that lack of planning, kind of you could see, could see that. Um, so it was actually the next story I wrote, the next novel I wrote was The Children of Gods and Fighting Men. Um, and I think because it had that like four to five years journey of writing and learning to edit that that book was a lot easier to write and a lot more focused and a little bit better um structured I know some people who kind of work away at that first novel and think right this is going to be the one and then if it doesn't get anywhere they're kind of disappointed maybe in themselves or they feel like it's wasted time or wasted effort did you ever feel like that or did you feel like this was just kind of training ground for you um yeah I, I've had people say that to me too or you know you can see people talk about that on on Twitter and social media for me writing was just my hobby mm-hmm. and it was um something that I'd really missed in that kind of gap period where I would, you know I'd been off traveling and um had children and stuff and I hadn't been able to do it very much because when I was a child teenager early 20s I wrote a lot so for me, it was just a hobby and there wasn't really like, I know I um, I did submit that first novel, not very seriously. Um, and so I wasn't really very disappointed when it didn't sell. I wasn't really expecting it to sell. Mm. Um, and so for me, when people talk about, you know, it's a waste of time or they feel that they've wasted their time. Um, I've never, ever felt that when it came to writing because I just enjoy it. Mm. and it was for me you know the kids went to bed and they would write for an hour and for me it was a very happy hour of kind of using my imagination and and writing and it can be therapeutic as well and I would get kind of agitated if I ever had periods of time where I would stop Mm. um so no so there's never any disappoint disappointment and I think then, you know, I sent it off a few times and it, you know, no one wanted to take it on. Um, I think being able to look critically at your work is important at that stage. You know, is this a novel that's going to sell? You know, why isn't anyone interested? And for me, um, I could sort of see it just was too long still. It was still too 
waffly and unstructured. And I actually, I had, I sent it off to someone um, who is an agent, but also reads books and gives you a, a critique on it. Um, and so that first book had two timelines. So one was um, 11th century Ireland and the other timeline was in the future. And so he read it and was like, well, the future stuff is just sort of okay. You know, fine, but the historical stuff is really good stuff. Like that's the book that you need to write. And so for me, that was really good feedback. You know, <clears throat> I think sometimes we all want that positive feedback and it's really important to us, but sometimes listening to the negative feedback or isn't working is just, is just as important mm -hmm. and to not take it so personally, you know, it's, um, you can only, you know, you always want to improve and to grow and you, you know, you can't do that if you only ever have nice things said to you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so no, no, I, I, I never felt bad about that first book not working out. And for me, then whenever I started the second book, I could instantly see kind of, oh, I'm like fixing everything that not that I did wrong in the first book, because it was a book of discovery, but I was just able to create something a little bit more um, polished, mm. shall I say. I'm going to touch back on your kind of writing routine a bit later, because I loved I, I saw you give an interview where you said you and your kind of husband had this agreement where you would you would put the kids to bed one night and then the night where you weren't, you would go and write for this hour. So I want to talk about that a bit later, but I want to touch back on the book for, for a second. So I saw in the back of your novel where you'd written like an author's note and you'd said, you know, some people ask you, why didn't you write just a straightforward fantasy novel? Or And then there'd be another section of people who'd say, why didn't you write a straightforward historical novel? So for the benefit of the listeners who maybe haven't got to your book yet, can you talk about why you decided to write this kind of hybrid version and what was it like to try and balance the two? Okay, so I've thought a lot about this myself. <laughs> so if we actually read any Irish mythology, um, so there's the, probably the most famous story is the Cattle Raid of Cooley, which is a, a very famous uh, mythological tale about Cahillan. Um, If that was to be sold today as a novel, it would be historical fantasy because there are historical kings and queens who have no magic. There are fantastical characters like the Morrigan, who is a prophet of the Tudor Danon, who appears in it. And then there's Cahulan, who is a, is a very famous warrior and has magical objects, but isn't, isn't like a witch or a druid or anything himself. And so I had read a lot of mythology. And so when I started to write this, I think that was so in my head that it just seemed very natural that you would have these magical mythological people alongside all the historical kings and queens um and so it just came out like it wasn't really planned to be that way but the first chapter I wrote was Gormla's chapter which is the first chapter the prologue in the novel and she just came out that way and so before I knew it sort of the, the story was written and I realized that this was a kind of a cross genre book mm um which I hadn't really planned on writing but it's sort of just what happened <laughs> um but in terms of combining the two I think um in the first book I find it fairly easy because the characters hide their magic 
And so you do have these magical scenes every so often, but it's it's quite contained because they themselves don't want to use their magic. Um, but I did find the fact that these two women had a lot of power, but still were not able to succeed in life was interesting. And I think, you know, obviously women today, we, we don't have magical powers, um, but there's a lot of strength and intelligence in women, but still we're living in a world where, you know, we are not always doing very well or we're still oppressed and you know we have all these protests going on around which I think of a lot and you know it, it, it is that you know that we have a lot of power within us but sometimes we just don't use it or can't use it and why is that and that kind of exploration and so Gormla and Fula are very different characters who have very different perspectives on life and it's exploring that too about you know how how can you succeed Mm. How can you kind of make yourself be powerful? So was that your kind of main reason for centering these two characters um, at the heart of the novel? Because uh, it's a very, obviously both characters are female and it's a female perspective. And I guess we're used to a very male slanted fantasy world. Um, so was that kind of the obvious choice for you then to pick these two characters? Yeah. I think, um, and I've read a lot of historical fiction and I do love those male characters. Um, But obviously a lot of history is really military history. And so that's why the the warriors and the kings and the soldiers are normally the protagonists because they are active, right, in the story. And when you have a female character, the the issue can sometimes be that they are not active. Like Mm -hmm. they're, they're reacting to the actions that the kings make, that the warriors make. And so when you're writing um, a novel, you're often told it's better to have characters who are active. And so it sort of then seems at odds with that advice to have a female character who isn't on the battlefield if you're telling um, a a historical fiction novel. Um, So, but then of course we've had a lot of those novels and I wanted to do something different. And having two female characters, um, it just, again, it felt right. It felt that I was getting to show people a view of Ireland that was different to what we have seen before. And uh, Gorman, of course, is a historical character. She existed and, um, you know, she's not documented in a very nice way by the the historians of the time. You know, she is recorded as being... um, kind of like a wicked stepmother um, sort of character. And so initially I thought of making her a more sympathetic character. But then when I kind of examined it a little bit more, the reason why Gormla wasn't liked by these historians is that she was ambitious and um, she wanted power. But whenever the male figures in that period of history are discussed, they are all ambitious Mm. and they all want power, but they are the heroes. So it's not that she is a bad person. It's just that she has qualities that are not thought to be nice Mm. for a woman in that period of time. So I thought, again, that that's like, that's something interesting to explore. Um, And I think, yeah, so for me, for me, having the female protagonists, actually there was a lot more exploration that could be done, a lot more fun. Um, 
and something different to kind of another Uhtred of Bebenberg or even though I love those characters and I do love them but I just I felt almost that if I had had a male warrior protagonist I would have been rewriting The Last Kingdom but in Ireland and I wanted it to be slightly different. And I guess for you the enjoyment and the excitement was finding those gaps to make your own. Um, did that play a part in your research because um, I wondered kind of about the timeline because was, did that make the kind of structure of the storyline um, easier to write because you were generally following kind of historical events um, but what was it like then to kind of you know mix in a bit of magic and what did it make it more interesting to kind of work out where you could include it? Um, it well I suppose for, for the, the as a basis I did have the timeline um, now, Irish history, there is not lots of information in this period of time, which was actually good because I had a vague timeline, but then I could sort of do a lot of my own um, storytelling within that frame. Um, but the magical things, I don't know, again, like I'm not I, I'm not a huge planner. I'm, I like to discovery, um, write, I suppose, and the scenes to unfold. So sometimes, most of the time, the scenes where the magic was used, they just... They just unfolded as I wrote, um, which was a lot of fun, uh, you know, because you obviously I'm trying you're trying to push the two characters and they're not using their magic. So what situations could possibly arise where they would? And so for one, it is um, something happens where she feels her power is threatened. And then for the other one, it is where peace is threatened. And so you're you're allowing the magic to show who the characters are, you know, what, what has pushed them to doing something that they are not allowed to do. And so that was fun, you know, that you're using the magic to kind of add to the characterization. Yeah. When I opened up your book and saw the enormous cast of characters, I thought, oh my goodness, Shauna has got a very ambitious task on her hands. Having yeah. <laughs> to create this world where characters have kind of their loyalties and their rivalries and you're also kind of respecting historical stories but also building in your own characters tell us a little bit then about your world building how do you work with kind of a big cast and keeping some sort of historical truth but also creating this well, it is world building because every even historical fiction, you have to kind of build the world a little bit. So what was that like? I know you're not much of a planner, but I'm guessing maybe the world building must happen happening maybe in the edits or ad hoc when you needed it to happen. Well, I actually I think the world building was already all there because I had read so much historical um, like nonfiction books um, and the mythologies. You know, I've I've hundreds of books in my library and, you know, about Ireland and you know Irish uh, archaeological records and you can go online to the Irish University websites and they have um, kind of old mythological stories that were written by the monks in Ireland they're all translated so there was a lot of research that had gone in actually probably to my first novel as well I'd done a lot of research then um, so so that was all in my head um, kind of what I thought Ireland was like in that time and then but also which kind of contradicts a lot of stories I'd read as a child about Ireland at this time because you you get um, Brian Brew who's a character in my story you know that I've read children like 
books about him and um, about the Vikings coming to Ireland. And what I had read as a child was mostly all wrong, um, or at least very rose-tinted. Um, and so I think I quite enjoyed showing Ireland as I think it truly was. You know, it was there was a lot of wars going on. Um, there was wars a lot between the Irish kings. It's not just a Viking invasion. Um, you know, there are feuds and battles constantly in Ireland at this time. So for me, it was trying to show kind of that, but also, sorry, as, uh, alongside all these wars and conflicts is all this beautiful music. And there's beautiful artistry. There is beautiful jewelry being made. You know, it's so it's like how how could how would this culture actually have worked? Um, I had the the like notes on the legal system, which is very complex and you know um, well thought out actually. And so you're trying to pull together the culture of the people and how they would be. And I really enjoyed that and kind of bringing to life. And Ireland, I think, was true rather than kind of, I suppose, some of the stories I'd read, which in hindsight kind of were making out that the Irish were fabulous and these horrible Vikings came and invaded, which isn't really sort of true, but it's very, um, I don't know, abbreviated and maybe lacking in um, nuance. Mm. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So one question I want to ask you, and hopefully we can avoid spoilers with this one. Your novel is the first in a series. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not much of a planner, you've said, but how do you kind of end a book knowing that there's more to come? And there's a sort of hint maybe that we might be exploring different characters in com- upcoming novels. Um, but how do you kind of make sure you've still got enough story to tell, but make sure that your first book is satisfying as a standalone oh okay yes so I'm not much of a planner like I don't have um kind of reams of notes or like a chapter by chapter plan um but I do I did know when I had finished book one um what that centered around and I knew for book two what that would center around and I know for book three so I know where I'm going and I always know how the book's ending but I just don't know (laughs) what's happening (laughs) like in the beginning, in the middle. Um, And so, you know, for me, because um, I've got kind of a a character who's very politically astute and scheming, and obviously she's putting some of these wars or feuds into place herself. So it's like, how would that happen? 
you know, who, who are the main characters here? How are they related? How do they know each other? What um, kind of what wounds can Gomla pick in these people to make them suddenly turn on each other? So I sort of I know what has to happen. Um, so I, I well I know enough I think that I was able to to sell the three book deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyone who's already read book one, there is lots more to come, um, and I, I'm going to tease a bit more out of Shauna later. But um, I wanted to speak more about your kind of writing journey in general. Now, you mentioned that you wrote as a child and you wrote kind of into your teens. Um, but I saw an interview with you where, well, I suppose with your first novel that you you wrote, you had no real intention to kind of get published. It wasn't you were writing to be published. Um, you were just writing for fun. So did you kind of was there, even though you weren't consciously writing in that way, was there a little thought at the back of your mind, like, I would really love to be a published author? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I think when I was younger and I wrote stories, it just seemed like such an impossibility. You know, other people were writers, you know. I would, I couldn't be a writer. That would be kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, you don't make lots of money being a writer unless you're one of the top writers. So whenever I was at school, writing was my hobby. And, you know, I went to university and I did like finance and did very sensible career <laughs> um, <laughs> moves. And that was always fine. And reading and writing were just my hobbies. Um, and because I, I think my mum and dad were like, oh, you know, why wouldn't you do journalism or something writing related? And but that never appeared to me because you're writing other stories about other things, not what I wanted to do. So I was just like, no, 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 I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll get um, kind of a job. I was good at maths. So, as a, you know, I'll get a job, kind of something mathsy and then writing and reading uh, will be my hobby. And I was completely fine with that as it just being my hobby. But yeah, I mean, of course, you know, when I started writing again, you know, you did think, oh, it would be lovely one day to get published. Um, but it wasn't like a huge motivator. It was more just a sort of something, you know, that you'd say as a bit of a dream sometimes. Um, because I think writing to get published, um, I, got, I think that's difficult. I think it's difficult because um, sometimes it seems like there's no rhyme or reason as to what's in at the minute. Mm -hmm. Things that are in can go out of fashion yeah. and all of that. So um, I definitely didn't write to be published or anything like that. I just wrote what mm -hmm. I wanted to write. Yeah, and trends change very quickly, but also books take a long time to be published. So what is a yeah. trend now? If you're writing to that trend, by the time you've written and sold a book, we're talking sort of four years down the line and things could be very different by that point. So right, yeah. I think kind of trying to write to a specification is, is pretty, pretty difficult. Um, I wanted to ask you then, let's touch back on your kind of writing routine because you were mm -hmm. writing at this very precious hour of yours that you had um is that still part of your writing routine now or has it kind of changed now that you're published and you're writing the series it's changed a little bit um so that that routine was in place for maybe like five six years um and then um just it wasn't anything to do with writing but 
um, just because I had the three kids and childcare was expensive. So I ended up um, working part-time instead of full-time for a while. Um, and then obviously when, when my youngest got into school, you know, obviously I did have that option to think, you know, well, maybe I should go full-time again because I've got more hours, but I didn't. Um, I just I, I kept my part-time hours and then it meant I had two mornings um, to write whenever all my children were at school. So um, at the start, it was like nine to half, 11. And then the next year I got nine till one um, to do a bit of writing. And then I was like, well, that's when I'll do my writing and then the evenings will be a bit freer. And then whenever um, I'd finished the Children of Gods and Fighting Men, I kind of did some evenings then um, to kind of help speed up the editing. Um, but no, but, but I probably started to move away from that nighttime writing at that stage because they had the, the daytime hours. And then also, I just think anyone who has three kids will know <laughs> it's so hard to work full time because your kids get sick and then there's like days off school and um, parent teacher meetings and school plays. And actually, I kind of was working um, like part time, like three days a week. And I, I felt I was still kind of completely maxed out you know so um but yeah so that, that was that was what I did but that that nighttime routine that was on the go for a long time mm. so how did you get from this writing every evening and coming up with this new novel which is now published how did you how did you get to a point where you had an agent and a book deal what was your story there okay so I finished the children of gods and fighting men during lockdown um but at the start of lockdown you know like it was almost nearly finished and then lockdown happened and then it was very slow to edit the last part of the book because I was homeschooling and working from home and all of that so I think about June time I started to send my book out and I got a few um maybe one full request and then rejection so I kind of after that, I polished up my um, synopsis, polished up the covering letter and had another go. And this time I got some more full requests. Um, and so that was good. And then, um, but kind of everything still went quiet. And I was like, is it the book? Is it that obviously lockdown's happening and agents are trying to, you know, all the books got um, pulled back and they weren't getting released. So I was like, maybe it's a bad time to, to actually even be sending out. Um, so I was sort of hemming and hang, and I was actually thinking of self-publishing because I kind of, I wasn't entirely sure because it was a cross-genre book. Was it going to ever find a publisher? But somebody read it and was like, no, Shauna, give, give this another go. Try and have another go finding some agents and publishers here. So um I had another look. Some of my top agents were now opening again because they'd been closed during lockdown. Um, and then also I noticed Head of Zeus was having an open window for fantasy. And I think it was fantasy and action thriller books with the genres they were having an open window for. And so I sent off to about another maybe six, seven agents and then directly to Head of Zeus. And then it just all went crazy. Like I had um, Head of Zeus made an offer um, as did three agents. Wow. And it all within like 
the first two weeks of sending it out and again like you know I was used to sending off and maybe three or four months later kind of getting uh, an email back so it all just was a bit crazy and it was very unexpected and um, I didn't think that would happen so yeah so it, that, that was um, uh, so I think it was a bit of timing and it was it was having the right agents Mm. um that I sent off to that time um you know Ed, Ed Wilson who I signed with my agent you know he he had RJ Barker who he represented um who I I loved and you know he has lots of fantasy um he's loads of fantasy authors so when he came up it was like oh you know um I'll send off to him uh because I thought he would be a good fit and then he was one of the ones that then um, made the offer brilliant so that's important too how did it work then with you getting an kind of an offer from head of Zeus and agents at the same time did you wait until you had an agent to kind of agree to a contract um because we're because obviously the way that most deals work is that your agent does the submitting and then they get a cut of the deal so how did it work with this with the situation Okay, so uh, yeah, so obviously I'm going to the agents with an offer in hand, um, but um, my agent got me a better offer than the one I was offered. Right. So, so when you when you queried the agents, you said to them, "Someone's already interested." Like, were you waving that at them? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, actually, to be fair, um, the full requests from most of the agents were made before I had the head of Zeus offer. <laughs> so actually, whenever the head of Zeus offer came in. I didn't email any of the agents who mm. hadn't got back to me because I thought, well, at least I know these agents definitely like the book without the offer, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I did. So obviously once the head of Zeus offer came in, um, then actually I spoke to all the agents that had made an offer of representation to kind of see who I clicked with or um, what they thought they wanted to do with the novel and all of that. So Ed just they were all fabulous it was really difficult choosing an agent actually but um Ed's just I felt me and him clicked quite well um yeah so he went off then and head of Zeus were fine you know when I said look you've given me an offer very excited but I would like an agent to kind of do the contractual stuff because that's just not my feed um so they were happy to wait until I got an agent um so yeah so then once I had Ed then he just kind of went forth and sorted all the contractual stuff out Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I just wanted to ask you about that because I find it really fascinating there are so many ways that people have got a deal or got an agent or you know signed and and I just think um people think there's kind of like only one way and so I'm always fascinated when there's a, a version of that kind of journey that I haven't heard before so it's interesting to hear yeah yeah, no, so because I know I would read lots of things about how to find an agent and obviously going to cons and workshops with agents is like a big thing, but I could never afford to do that. And I had three small kids and I, you know, I couldn't go anywhere, you know, and leave them behind. So um for me, kind of just sim- the submitting um was the only way, the only opportunity I had. Um, but then also you know, looking out for those open windows, which Head of Zeus do every so often, Angry Robot does, and some of the other big um, publishers every so often do an open window. So that's really important too, you know, because you're you're finding, you know, the more people you submit to, the better, because as someone who has had a book 
published and I've got lots of writer friends. It's really just finding that one editor that really likes your stuff and all editors like different things. Uh, and so, you know, my book, um, you know, it's been published, it's doing well, you know, but it got rejected a lot as well. And every book out there has been rejected. So it's just finding the right pair of eyes to look at your story. Um, so find, yeah, keep submitting and, you know, it doesn't have to be just agents. It can be the open windows. It can be, um, you know, there's some really credible um, indie presses as well. Um, although you have to be careful that you're not sending off to vanity presses who are marketing themselves as indie presses, but you know, that there's a lot of ways to, to get published and it's just researching and kind of mm -hmm. looking at what would fit your book. So you've had some incredible reviews. I was scrolling your Goodreads and you've been compared to, you've been called the new Madeline Miller. Uh, people uh, comparing Gormla to Cersei Lannister. Um, people absolutely desperate for your next book. Um, so what has that been like to be kind of working on the next book and the third book in the series? Have they have these kind of I'm, I'm guessing you've probably tried to avoid reviews, but have you had kind of positive reviews that have powered you through the kind of tricky moments and the edits and the, the days where you just don't feel like writing? Um, I have actually I read a lot of my reviews, <laughs> which um, people tell me off for because you shouldn't really. Um, but um, yeah, I've had some reviews that have really helped par through those difficult uh, writing times. Um, I remember my first big review was from Nick Borelli, who has his own blog, um, it's Out of This World, SFF. Um, and he gave me like a five-star review and it was the first big review I had. And it was such a, like, a good review, you know, that you're just like, oh my God, like I can not look at any more reviews now because somebody <laughs> but one person has got the book you know that as I wanted it to come across um and then and I've had other lovely reviews um and then booktubers as well like the brothers Gwyn um you know they did the big review on on my book and even just other authors agreeing to blurb my book was a big thing um because I had Anthony Ryan and Mark Lawrence and Stephen Aaron and RJ Barker and um and then also Joseph O'Connor who writes Irish historical fiction who I'm a big fan of so I had all these kind of boosts and uh, you do need them because you know sometimes you do get a, a, a bad review and it can make you feel bad and you just have to remember you know not not all books are for all people you know mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it has, it has been good. Um, I'm quite active on uh, Twitter and on um, some like fantasy discords. And that's wonderful too. I, I quite like that community uh, spirit that you have in the fantasy genre. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's definitely been a lot of fun. So finally then, tell us about book two, anything you can tell us and... Oh. maybe you could tell us how far along the process you are and even what else is in store in future oh gosh well <laughs> is it's written um, I'm actually expecting my edits um, any day now um, but the story as far as I'm concerned is done and book three I'm about halfway through writing book three um, so book two what can I tell you I don't know I don't think I can tell you too much um <laughs> 
Gormla and Fula obviously are are back and um, events have progressed. They've got one more POV character this time, um, but they only have three chapters. Um, so just to give like another little perspective um, onto what's going on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to tell too much. Yeah, no, no spoilers. <laughs> no, well, maybe we'll leave it there then. But thank you so much, Shauna, for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, well, thank you, Chloe. Uh, thanks for all those questions. Um, and thanks for, for, for reading and being a big support. That was Shauna Lawless talking about her historical fantasy, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,